Hello, adventurers, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 16 of the World of Azuria podcast. My name is Beth Ball, and I'm the author of the Age of Azuria epic fantasy series, which we'll be exploring in this show. In some episodes, we'll be swept away into the magical world of Azuria as I read chapters from the novels and stories. In others, we'll dive into the lore behind Azuria, and I'll answer your questions about the world, characters, and more. If you enjoy epic fantasy worlds, immersive settings, nature-based magic, and other characters, <laughs> then this podcast is for you. We will also be hosting occasional puppy sound sightings of um, shaky harnesses and jingles. So, in our second season, we're traveling through Buried Heroes, book one in the Age of Azuria series. In today's episode, we learn more about the ancient world of Eldura and about Elioth's experiences in Linolin as she and Marcone embark on the first leg of their journey. But before we dive in, I wanted to take a moment to say thank you to those of you who have left a rating or review of the podcast. You taking the time to do so means so much to me. If your podcast app supports ratings or reviews, please take a moment to share what you enjoy about the show. And if it doesn't, then please subscribe and share the episode with a friend who enjoys epic fantasy. I hope that you enjoyed the preview of the Tree of Silver at the end of last week's episode. That was really fun to share. In case you need a refresher, the Tree of Silver is a weekly email series story combining epic fantasy fiction and the extended narratives of tabletop role-playing. To learn more, visit bethballbooks.com slash tree of silver, that's tree dash of dash silver, or you can use the link in the show notes. There you can sign up for the waitlist and be first in line for story previews before launch later this year. And to discover next before I'm sorry, to discover what happens next before new episodes are released every Tuesday, you can find Buried Heroes for free at bethballbooks.com shop or at your favorite book retailer. Let's start our adventure. The dappled sunlight through the trees overhead cast a soothing green light on their downhill trail. Mara's directions were at times more ephemeral than seemed absolutely necessary, such as finding the proper turn in a creek bed based on the type and shape of a rock at the bend. But so long as they traveled south, they would find the road that intersected the forest and led to Trudid. Why is it that they use the term champion? Elioth asked after they were alone on their path. For myself and those like me? Yes. Not to suggest that you aren't, of course, she added quickly. Was it a martial competition? No. Marcone smiled at the idea. Beyond representing the Titan's will, we were also warriors though not all of our fights were martial in nature. And there were other champions of fire? Ignis had several others who served in a similar fashion as myself, but we each had unique tasks and aptitudes. The armies of our great cities partnered alongside us, so I had a small collection of soldiers who traveled with me. He glanced away from her. How did they choose these soldiers? For some, it was a matter of specialized training. Ignis selected others, as he did with me when I was young, and there were still more who volunteered. It was dangerous work, oftentimes even more so than foot soldiers in the vast regiments, but the cause remained stronger rooted for those in the battalion, and that made our risks feel more worth taking. The battalion? He grinned. The Blazing Battalion. The name sounds strange to say out loud, here. He raised his hands toward the canopy of trees overhead. But those men and women were important to me. We fought together until the end. He set his jaw and looked ahead. 
Elia laid her hand against his shoulder. I am sorry, Marcone, about your battalion. We can speak of something else if you'd prefer. I may hold off on that particular story a while longer. There were other champions in those days as well, for the other titans, and there had been for thousands of years before I served. Really? But we don't have any now. You would be much more likely to know than I am. Maybe when we get back, we can ask Mara more about it. I would appreciate that. The calls of songbirds sounded in the treetops overhead, and Elias searched for their brightly colored plumage against the varied greens of the early spring growth. You said something a moment ago about the cause. Can you tell me what you mean? Ah, that the soldiers in the battalion had an easier time maintaining their belief in what they were doing than others, even if they placed themselves in greater danger. How did they manage that? Well, lady, we had been fighting for hundreds of years by that point. Resources for everyone, even those removed from the conflict, were stretched then. We had lost several cities in the last century, Beacon chief among them. They were a close ally of respite, my home city. When people endure such hardship for so long against a relentless enemy who shows no mercy, who has no capacity for compassion, the collective spirit breaks. You saw the fear among the druids after Yvain and the Saudad spoke to them of potential threats and the loss of their allies. That was commonplace, even calm, for us. People were terrified, and they had every right to be. The anger on Berevik's face, Persephone's despair at the lack of care or response from those gathered, the disbelief. How could a society survive that constantly felt endangered? I can't imagine what that must have been like, Eliot said softly. When I was fighting in the war, three of the Titans had recently departed, taking their power with them. Most of their champions fell, though a few endured. Ignis remained, and he helped my soldiers and I remember why we were fighting. What we were fighting for. Our belief stayed strong. That wasn't the case for everyone. He spoke as though he'd fought for decades, but he couldn't have been older than thirty-five, Elioth guessed. But in a time of war... Perhaps they enlisted people at a very young age. And what were you fighting for, Marcone? The right answer is to protect the people of respite, to prove faithful to Ignis, and because it was the only true and right path. But my actual reason... He pushed his jaw forward and took a slow, deep breath. When I first began to fight was vengeance. She stopped on the path, surprised. But you don't seem very angry... What happened that drove you to seek revenge? Respite was a large city, having taken in many refugees over the course of the war, and the poorest residents lived outside the protection of the city walls. We had advanced troops across Eldora, taking the fight to our enemies. As far as we were concerned, our city was well protected. Hadvar was much larger than Linolin and had a larger military to protect itself. Their soldiers constantly patrolled their lands, neutralizing perceived threats before they had a chance to intensify. This helped them to feel safe, while Linolin's soldiers primarily functioned as peacekeepers tasked with protecting trade routes. She could understand how Hadvar's model would make a large city feel more secure, but she preferred Linolin's approach. Marcone sighed deeply, clearly still troubled by what had transpired so long ago. Out on campaign... Word reached us that Respite had been attacked by a horde of undead soldiers, a troop we had no idea existed. Impossible numbers. 
We returned with all haste, but it was too late. The entire outer community had been destroyed. Elliot's eyes grew wide in alarm. She'd never heard an incredible account of undead creatures rampaging about, and had always consigned those tales to storytellers' imaginations. He spoke faster now, speeding toward his story's conclusion. Fighting the undead brought additional cruelties. For each person our enemy slaughtered, they gained a new soldier. To lose a friend beside you was to have them turn against you in a matter of moments. I... I don't know what to say, Marcone. It sounds horrible, gruesome. It's no wonder you wanted revenge. There is one more element, lady. He lowered his shoulders and head, resigned. I told you earlier that I was an orphan. I grew up in an orchard. The husband and wife who owned it took in children like me from all across the city. I tried to reach them, but they were beyond our aid. Marcone turned to look straight at her, his eyes blazing. I killed the man and woman who took me in, who raised me. Their souls had already been torn from their bodies, which were left with a relentless hunger, a desire to turn all they encountered into mindless devourers just like them. Their broken corpses of children were scattered among the trees. He closed his eyes and shook his head. It was more than I could bear. Yelith parted her lips, but no words of comfort came to her. Marcone was too wrapped in his tale, his confession, to notice. I plunged my sword into the earth and cried out in my rage. I vowed to serve anyone who could help me avenge the innocent and the good, those who had done so much for me, the ones I had ultimately failed. Ignis answered me. To have to turn on people you loved, and to lose people you thought were safe, what could she say in the face of such cruelty, such suffering? Marcone? She laid a hand on his arm, but he had already turned back to stare down the horizon. That's awful, what you had to endure. I'm sorry. It sounded as though he had done all he could, as had those helping him, but she didn't know how to say that in words he would accept. Every facet of his story, its scale, was beyond her experience. His voice was little more than a whisper. I remembered their faces, the children's bodies, embedded them deep down. The memories became fuel and drove me on, even when the odds, the mission, seemed impossible. It's to further that vengeance that I spoke to you last night, why I have to discover what the enemy is doing. I intend to seek out the orchestrators and bring them to justice, and this time I will not fail. Without warning, he strode forward on their path. She had to run to catch up with his long strides. But this being, whoever they were, they're not here now. They can't be. Alessandra, the Dark Queen, still haunts these lands, be assured. She may be hidden, but she is active somewhere in this world. He looked so certain, almost daring her to contradict him. It wasn't that she didn't believe him, but why would this god remain hidden if she was so powerful? No one in Linolin, as far as she knew, worshipped anyone of the sort. There were goddesses of light and beauty, gods of music and literature. The only undead who roamed did so in word-of-mouth tales gleaned from the mountain communities and retold in the twilight days before the harvest. If a dark goddess was active in Kaldara, she didn't seem to be interested in anyone knowing. They traveled in silence for the rest of the morning. And then she saw them. Fae vines, 
the mystical ivy that, in ancient times, marked passages into the bright lands. The colors were said to be more vibrant the nearer they were to one of the portals. Katerina had told her of a particularly colorful cluster she spied on her travels. A garnet garland twirled around opalescent and turquoise branches, with pale green moss shimmering underneath. Marcone, look! She pointed to the vines. Mathilde, our gardener, wanted to grow those in the castle, but they would never take to the soil, no matter what she tried. Elia stepped off the creek bed trail and reached forward to run her fingers over the lavender leaves. Feywines only grow on their own. They will not take root when planted, but slowly climb up and out of the soil, wherever they decide to be. I remember these. He stood beside her and peered at the ivy. I cannot recall the particulars, but I believe some of the druids and fey would weave them into clothing. As decoration, or the entirety of their clothing? I believe that depended on the person. That sounds revealing. It was. Slowly, he angled his face toward her so that she could see his suppressed smirk, and she laughed. Everything you've told me of your time thus far seems so intense, violent. It's hard to imagine someone having the time or inclination to construct a garment from vines and leaves. I doubt that it was a common practice. We'll add that to our questions for Mara for when we return. Maybe that's one of the things they'll teach you when you join their community. Elioth narrowed her eyes at him, but her smile stayed. I'm trying to decide whether or not you mean that as a compliment. He had been so serious all morning after he told her about respite. But you're forgetting, they don't want me to be part of their community. That one elf? Or the dissenting voices of a few others? Did you look beyond them, lady, to see the full picture? Like what Izmir said? Precisely. You are right that some of them are afraid, but there were many who were silent with disapproval, and that was not directed at you. He led her back to the path. Elioth focused on what she remembered of the two council meetings and tried to expand her vision to include others beyond those who had garnered so much of her attention. The faces were indistinct, but she could imagine withheld disagreement with Berevik, someone of sided with Maria and Izmir. Elioth led them through a narrow part of their path as she reflected on what he had said. She dodged the branches that reached out to catch strands of her hair and wrapped them around grasping leaves. How will you find out what the dark goddess Alessandra is doing, or where she is? I am not sure, lady. In the past, she left her mark wherever she held sway, but there must be someone who knows of her whereabouts. Her stomach nodded in frustration at being left out of his plan, eliminated without a question. But why did that bother her so much? She wasn't equipped to take on an ancient evil deity, and she had no desire to fight whichever creatures would serve such a goddess. One ice monster and a rampaging giant had proved more than enough for her. But the feeling would not relent, either. Scad would have known what to say to return her to herself, but she did not. Elioth couldn't stop thinking about the attack on the orchard. Marcone, do you think, if Alessandra is still out there somewhere, that she has undead forces working for her? You said that you aren't aware of any having roamed Kaldara in recent history. Only in the stories, but most of those are folk tales. That wouldn't make them untrue. Marcone's tone was even, a gentle reminder more than a correction. If they were working for Alessandra, they would be so numerous as to be unavoidably recorded in both official and unofficial histories. Are there m many necromancers about? 
necromancers who cast magic on the dead? That is one aspect of their practice, yes. They use other dark magics and energies as well. Elioth shook her head. I haven't heard of anyone like that, but if they weren't in Linolin, or if they were kept secret, I don't know how I would have found out. I believe we're safe from the undead for now, then, lady. He half-smiled, but his eyes remained serious. Alessandra may have found others to serve her, but I would set you free from that particular fear until circumstances prove otherwise. Thank you, Marcone. That is comforting. At least now she would know what to look out for in case the dark times Marcone had known returned. The scent of fresh growth and the call of birds overhead pulled her back into their brighter, safer present. A patch of wildflowers appeared from behind a large boulder at a divide in their trail. Elioth ran forward and sank to her knees beside them. How beautiful! She trailed her fingers beneath the perfectly petaled heads. A faint breeze picked up and turned them toward her, so slight she could barely feel it, but they responded with enthusiasm, angling their faces alongside their sisters to gaze at the sky. And which flowers are these? Marcone asked, kneeling next to her. Most of them are species of pansies and daisies. These periwinkle ones, they used to be quite rare, though they are less so lately. King Arontus's grandmother, Josephine, loved them and forbade them to be grown in any garden in the kingdom save her own. She renamed them after herself, and the Arontus house colors are periwinkle and gold to this day. The flowers used to symbolize everlasting love. She tried to shift that to her own everlasting reign. That seems like a totalitarian way to engage with flowers. It was, extremely, and it was not well received. The farmers and gardeners revolted, but subtly. They tossed the flower seeds onto the wind and replanted them in shared communal spaces. What she meant to make exclusive to herself became a symbol of camaraderie across the city-state. King Arontus saw the opportunity in this when he was still a prince, and he renamed the flower again, from the Cephine to the Olenese. It's a nickname for the city taken from the way many sailors slur the first part of the name in their speech, shortening Lenolin to Lilin or Nulin. The boulder that shielded the flowers from strong winds was the one that Mara had told them to look out for with a shoulder notch, half a profile, and a willful aura. It signaled a turn to the east in their path, where the creek bed divided in twain, and they followed the new branch of the undulating trail. You have a great many things to say about Flora for someone who grew up in a castle. Were they all in the garden you tended? Elioth grinned. Most of them were, though I doubt I could have learned all the flowers grown there. But the garden was one of my escapes, one of the places where I felt safe or could be alone in the castle. An escape from your family? From my stepfather at first, and his children. Later from Mama. The sky began its twirling dance from azure to pale tangerine and magenta above them. Why did you want to get away from them? My stepfather, Duke Calderon Amastasia, doesn't like me. I am a reminder of a difficult time in his marriage, to put it delicately. And he resents you for this. It is much easier than resenting himself. He is neglectful of my mother even now. I think my father offered for her to leave with him, or I like to believe he did anyway. She must have said no. I was born in our estate by the sea, Aurora. The year I turned five, the Duke convinced her to move back to Ayo Keep with him. 
Marcone slowed to look for a place they might set up camp for the evening. Elias' legs ached from the day of walking, but she had hardly noticed before now, with the time in the open air and all the wonders of the forest around them. Do you miss your first home, Aurora? he asked. I do, terribly. The earnestness of his question surprised her into a quick response. After they found a place to camp, a flat bank with a gentle slope surrounded by budding trees, Marcone built up a fire as Yelith continued her story, relieved of some of her self-consciousness because he was occupied. Aurora is a full day's carriage ride down the southern coast from the castle. It's one of the oldest places in Lenolin, though it's at the far border, opposite from where we are now. The day we left, Mama gave me this amulet. She said Papa had given it to her when they parted. She looked wistful when she said it, even to me as a child. The fading sunlight winked off the golden bands as she twirled the amulet between her fingers. This is how I found you. It's never happened before, but it flashed, and I was on a mountainside. This symbol, the three-chamber hourglass, was on the door to the cavern. Once again, the firelight seemed to calm the runes resting beneath his skin. His olive complexion shone in the warm glow. I want to hear more about your amulet soon, Marcone said. But for now, I would be honored to learn more about you. Please, tell me about this estate and your mother. Elliot spoke of Amelie's beauty, her gorgeous golden hair, pale skin, and sapphire blue eyes. How, even now, ambassadors and nobles meeting her for the first time seem to fall instantly in love with her. She ignores this, of course. Propriety is key. When I was little, we would play together, and she read to me. After we moved back, she withdrew, and I was alone. As she left, the Duke's bidding dominated my life more. At the time, I didn't understand. I thought I'd done something wrong. Where was the beautiful woman I had known, who took me to the seaside, who loved me? Elias' voice splintered, and she avoided meeting Marcone's eye. A silver-barked birch offered solace instead. The Duke had plans for me, I found out later. It seems foolish. I don't know how I didn't see it. The last several years, there's been a parade of suitors. That's where we were going when I found you. He'd finally decided, selected someone rich and cruel who lives far away. They were going to make me marry him. She turned from the silvery tree to Marcone. He was watching her closely. That's why I can't go back. His eyes had narrowed, but the expression inside them was soft, concerned. Then we will make sure you don't, lady. That is a terrible fate for anyone, and you deserve something much better. Something like an unknown force that wants to cause me harm and threatens anyone vaguely associated with me? She smiled so he could tell she was teasing. The simple meal they shared next to a fire by the burbling creek brought what should have been terrifying into a happier light. Marcone laughed. Perhaps not that exactly. I think something in between the two may suit you better. Hmm. That could be almost anything. Elias pulled out the roll of blankets Mara had given her and settled onto a soft patch in the grass. Overhead, swirls of smoke wrapped around winking stars, and the world felt at ease. It would have taken her months to reveal what she'd said about her mother and the Duke to someone she had met in Iokeep. Was it the walk through the woods, or their first meeting and having to fight to survive, together, that opened her up so much to him? 
He knew things about her that she had never confessed to anyone besides Teodric and Katerina. Elioth smiled as she thought of Skad and their late-night conversations, when he'd finished his work for the day and the rest of her family was asleep. She said even less to him, because he usually already knew, and more than the other two, he knew when she needed space to maul and to be. When they reached Truded, she would find a way to get word to him and Katerina that she was well. It should be close enough that she could send Edvard. Marcon could help her work out some sort of code to tell them where she was without alerting the Duke. With fond thoughts of her friends, Elia found her way to sleep while Marcon watched the woods. She'd never slept outdoors before, but the tiredness from their day's travel urged her quickly into sleep's arms. Marcon would wake her before the dawn to find some rest himself. Marcon returned from retrieving their morning firewood somewhat breathless, and the tattoos embedded in his skin stood raised from the surface in angry red burns. What happened? Eolith sprang up and ran over to him. He must have encountered something in the woods, though Mara's promise that they would be protected had so far proven true. It's nothing, lady. Are you feeling all right? The logs he'd carried back clattered to the ground. Marcone held her at arm's length and eyed her closely. Yes, I'm, I'm fine. Why did he think something had happened to her? His sword was sheathed, but he'd had ample time to use it and then clean it. If something is in the forest, I would like to know, she said. Marcone picked up the logs he had dropped and began to arrange them over the fire pit. There's nothing out there that you need to be concerned with. Elioth's teeth clamped together. Why was he lying? She sat at the edge of their fire and wrapped her arms around her knees. After she told him about her family, she had hoped he might be more honest with her or understand why she needed to be included in what transpired around them. He sighed heavily and looked at her. I don't know what happened, lady. Something about the forest air as I continued traveling away from camp. It was thinner, poisoned. My skin burned. I was afraid that it could be affecting you as well, and I ran back. Already the raised lines across his skin had faded, returning to the intersecting runes a few shades lighter than his tan skin. Are you all right now? Why didn't you tell me? Nothing of the kind happened here. I'm relieved to hear it. He shook his head and returned his attention to the fire. When I came back and saw that you were well, his jaw clamped shut again. He shook his head. I felt like a child frightened by my own imagination but still worried that something real might be happening to me or to you. Marcone tried to keep his tone light, but she could tell it was an effort. Thank you for hurrying back. His lips lifted in a small smile. May I see? Elioth asked, crossing the circle. She pulled back the sleeve of his borrowed tunic and traced the fading runes. I wish I could read them. I want to help. They pull at a memory, almost as though I'm in a dream. It seems like a text I should know, but have forgotten. I have been attempting to read them as well. She held his wrist in her hand and turned it over. The runes were more difficult to read against the lighter skin of his forearm. And have you found anything? He seemed amused at her close inspection. Elioth blushed and let go. Her mother would be appalled at her easy manner with someone she'd just met, but he was already more trustworthy and candid than any of the suitors the Duke had put in her way over the last five years. Marcone warmed their breakfast and made them each a cup of tea to ward off the early spring chill. On their second day of travel, the small woodland trail led them onto a dusty dirt road just wide enough for two carriages to cross paths without having to leave the packed earth. 
There were deep tracks on one side of the road, but the other looked relatively untouched, with scant impressions of carts and horses burdened by passengers or supplies. Marcon emerged from the foliage first and looked both ways down the road. We've timed this quite well, haven't we? He smiled for the first time since before their mid-morning stop. It seems we have. Rather good for a new traveler and a newly awakened one following Mara's directions. If you can follow her directions, you can go anywhere. Marcone shook his head. I'd like to know a solid distance. Three leagues south. I can't feel the mood of the forest shift in order to know when I should bear east. One of the many reasons I'm glad I have you. Me? What have I to do with the directions? You were the one interpreting them. He grinned at her as though his meaning was completely obvious. We followed your instinct through this forest, lady. And now we've made it to our destination road. It was kind of him to try to increase her confidence in their travels. But beyond enjoying their journey, she'd done nothing unusual, and she certainly couldn't sense the trees as Mara suggested. We'll still need to figure out where exactly on the road we are, and then we can decide if we want to speak to the loggers or the mayor first. Thank you so much for joining me for today's adventure through Buried Heroes in the world of Azuria. If you'd like to find out more about me or my fiction, you can find me at bethballbooks.com. You can also find my books worldwide at your favorite bookstore, or ask your local librarian to add them to the library catalog. To stay up to date with the world of Azuria and be the first to know about upcoming fiction projects, visit bethballbooks.com join. I would love for you to be a part of my reading community, The Story Enclave, and as a special thanks to you, for a limited time, you'll receive a free ebook copy of Aurora when you sign up. Today's episode is sponsored by Amber Queen, book three in the Age of Azuria series. Amber Queen picks up our hero's stories after the events of Havarian Heist, book two. If you're listening to the episode on the day of its release, we're just one week away from the Amber Queen launch day. You can pre-order your copy of Amber Queen at bethballbooks.com shop or at your favorite bookseller. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at bethballauthor or on Twitter at groveguardian, or you can email me beth at bethballbooks.com. If you enjoyed our time together today and would like to hear more stories set in Azuria and stories set in Eldura, you can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash groveguardianpress. Look for the Fae and Damon tiers. In our next episode, we return to Teodric's storyline as he and the Amber Queen arrive in Nortelon. The theme song for this podcast was created by Garrett Rose of The Bardic Inspiration, who you can find on Instagram or Patreon at The Bardic Inspiration. Happy travels, and I hope that we'll be adventuring together again soon.